And we're in part two of a series we started last week called Bible Basics. What we're doing in this series is helping you have confidence in God's Word. Now, how many of you brought your Bible with you today? Anybody bring your Bible with you? That's awesome. You guys did it. You're my heroes. And I'm just challenging you to continue to bring your leather, hard, paper, whatever kind of Bible you have physical with you. Well, I just want to know that you have one, really. But um, now I've told you, I, to this day, continue to read much of Scripture, majority of Scripture, off my phone. And I think that's awesome. But I do think there's something about having a physical Bible that you can turn to, you can write in, you can highlight in, just to see how everything fits together. Sometimes you lose some of that in the screen, and I love the screen, but I want to encourage you to bring this with you, and if we need to turn the lights up a little bit during this series so you can do that, or if you want to, so you can, so you can read it in there, or uh, if you just want to, uh, to remember that this book is important. It's not just another app on your phone. I want to encourage you to, to bring it. Now, how many of you know, oh, I, I do want to tell you about this one because I'm bringing a different Bible every week. This one is, um, last week I brought my, my college Bible. Uh, this one I really like. This is when I started, you know, uh, becoming a professional Christian. I, uh, <laughs> I got this. This is uh, the New International Version by Zondervan. It's their Heritage Bible. So this, like, the leather smells good. It's, like, really nice. The, the pages are really high quality. It's got this gilding on the side. It's got this special font. So, anyways, I really like this Bible. Um, sometimes when I... Uh, People are getting married or like to mix a nice gift. And so I get this people and I was, I was giving it to people. I was like, I, I want this one for myself. So I got it for myself. So this is the Bible I'm going to use today. But how many of this Bible that we're talking about is full of promises? I've, I've mentioned this in our last series we did a while back called Open Handed, that there are over 8,000 promises in this book. Promises for you. Pro- promises that you can trust in. I'll just read a few of them to you. Don't worry, it's not all 8,000. It's what it says. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Give and it shall be given unto you. Confess your sin and you'll be forgiven. We are the righteousness of God in Christ. My God will supply all of your need according to his riches and glory. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Now, how many of you believe those promises? Just raise your hand. Yeah, it's good. If you didn't raise your hand, you're either just not going to participate or thank you for being honest. When we hear all these scriptures, a lot of times we ask the question, do you believe that? But the question that I want you to face today isn't do you believe it, It's, why do you believe it? I want you to face the reality. Why do I believe that I can build my life on this? Now, hopefully, just in asking you that question in church today, I'm not causing a crisis of faith in your life. But some people have never really thought about it too deeply. I want to recognize that for some people, for some Christians... Doubt can be very intimidating. Sometimes people feel like they have failed God if they have a doubt. 
In fact, I would just say if you're here and maybe you're trying to reconcile some doubts that you have about Scripture, I'm glad you're here. I think that this is the best place that you can be to work through any doubts that you have. And I'm not saying that the perfect arrival of Christianity is to get free from doubt. Doubt can actually be a gift from God if you approach it honestly. It can be an invitation to really understand the truth of God's word if you'll approach God honestly about it. But the reason I bring it up is because I've noticed more and more that a lot of Christians, when it, it comes to Scripture, they're not really confident in what they believe about the Bible. Here's what I mean. They, they want it to be true. They hope to God that it is true. But they don't have a conviction that this is true. And so when I ask that question, why do you believe just those promises I've read? That you confess your sin, that God will forgive you. That if you seek first the kingdom of God, that all the other things will be added unto you. That he will comfort you in your time of trouble. That his joy can be your strength. That in your weakness, he's made strong. Why do you believe you can build your life on that? Most people will say things like, well, I mean, it's what I've been taught. It's what I know. A pastor or parent told me I should, and so I do. I've, I've been taught that it's true, and that's good. So, sometimes we'll say things like, I've seen it true in somebody else's life. They believe it. I've seen it be true for them. Sometimes we'll even say, I've experienced it as true in my life. I'm not trying to suggest to you that any of those are bad reasons. But I do want to tell you there are better reasons. There's better reasons. And the point that I want to make, the good news, is that you don't have to be a theologian to know why you believe the Bible. In fact, the crazy thing about it is, you don't even have to understand how it all works for it to work in your life. That's good. I don't have to understand all of the, you know, scientific engineering theories of how I speak into this microphone and it wirelessly transmits on radio waves and comes through the speaker. Like, I know it works when I turn it on. You don't have to be a theologian to understand why you believe the Bible, but you do have to know the basics. You have to know the basics. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. I want to begin with a verse of scripture, and I asked somebody to help me read this this morning. Elena, would you mind coming up here? I'm just going to have you read a scripture. It's not going to be crazy names. It's going to be easy. And uh, yeah, would you mind bringing that microphone? Just make sure. I don't want to use mine. <laughs> easy scripture to read. Would you go ahead and uh, read that? Yeah. How's it? It's not, you got it on? Can you guys get the microphone working, please? Are you speaking in the right hand? Oh, there's no, no batteries. <laughs> there's no, no batteries. Now, okay, just for a minute. What if, you're, a worship, you're on the worship team, so you kind of know when it's light. But what, what if, just for a moment, I said, Pastor Jay, will you buy us a new microphone? Let's throw this away. It's not working. There's no point in having it. Imagine if just for a minute, 
instead of checking to see if there's batteries, and I'll let you put some batteries in there because I got some in there. Um, what, what if instead of checking the batteries, she started dismantling the top? What if she started getting into the microchips and laying everything out and getting a soldering iron trying to get something to connect? What if she started checking the antenna back there or unplugging or, or connecting different things or checking the switches in the back that powers everything? People think she's crazy. She doesn't have to know the inner workings all about how this microphone works. All she's got to know is the basics. Are there batteries? Is the light on? Am I speaking into the right end? All right, go ahead and read for us. All right, can you give it up for Elena? Thank you. You can take that with you. The, the, the point I'm trying to make is if you don't know the basics and all of a sudden what you've seen work for someone else, what somebody has told you will work, and what you've experienced at times working, if you don't know the basics, somebody can just as easily come in and say, that's not working, throw it away. And I see a lot of people with their faith because they've never really understood the Bible basics. They're quick to dismantle and quick to discard what is effective in their life. So, Let's get into this. I know it's kind of a strange verse. Wear on your feet what will prepare you to tell the good news of peace. I want you to be prepared today, and that's why I want to talk to you from this subject, socks and shoelaces, which coincidentally, I'm not wearing either today. <laughs> socks and shoelaces. What in the world am I talking about? Um, I actually brought a little prop. Oliver, would you bring those up to me? Just bring, no, just the ones, don't bring the whole thing. Just right there. Just bring those up to me. Um, my, my son Oliver, since he's bringing these up, I'll just tell you a little story about him. He just turned 12 last week on Monday. Thank you. I brought some socks and shoelaces. Thank you. Uh, he turned 12 on Monday. He's really into basketball right now. And, uh, in fact, he got, asked for, requested, and received a basketball hoop for his birthday. It's a big gift. And um, if any of you would like to help set it up this afternoon, uh, got it on Monday. It's still in the box in our garage. And uh, I told him ahead of time, because on the box it says it takes three hours to assemble. And I said, let me explain to you what this means. This is going to take us six hours, Oliver. <laughs> so I don't have time right now. But he's really into basketball, and he's been in basketball for a while. He uh, he's joined the team at school, and he, uh, you know, he's, he's been working on the basics. In fact, he comes to the church, and I'm trying to help him you know, with, with different things. What, what are some of the basics? You guys ever play basketball? Do you know the basics of basketball? Just kind of shout them out to me. Dri dribbling, right? You've got to have ball handling, dribbling. Cro oh, that's advanced. That's advanced. Okay. Um, Passing, passing, yeah, it's the basics. 
jump shot, you know, free throw. Yeah, I've been working. Okay, I'm glad you're engaged now. You can be quiet. My, My point is I've been working with him on the basics, you know, dribbling, passing, free throws, NBA 2K, the things that are going to help him really learn the game. And I was having this conversation with him. I said, you know, uh, Oliver, I've been working on these basics, but do you know what is the fundamental basics for legendary coach John Wooden? He didn't even know who John Wooden was, so let's pray for him. John Wooden, if you don't know, he, uh, legendary coach, first Hall of Fame coach and player, inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame, won 10 national titles, never been done before, never been done since. And uh, he... He's a great coach. He had something called, you know, the pyramid of success. And he had this ability to take players and, and really turn them into great athletes. And it started on the first day. It's been written about in different books. Bill Walton, who played for him, mentioned it in his autobiography. And I just got to tell you, I'm not really like a, a big sports trivia guy, but I was really happy to know this because I was talking about it with Brian Haney and he does, did not know this. And so I was just really happy to have some basketball info that, uh, that Brian Haney didn't have. But uh, so he would take these players, these five-star, all-America recruits, top-rated athletes. And you got to think, they're excited to come in and learn from the legendary coach, John Wooden. They know that they're going to get some insight, some wisdom to get them into the next level to win a championship. And on the first day of practice, he's not teaching them layups. He's not teaching them ball handling. He's not teaching them free throws or passing or defense. Know what he's he's teaching them? Socks, shoelaces. Imagine what this would be like. They come in, they want to learn. He says, okay, boys, I'm going to teach you how to put on your socks. The reason you got to know how to put on your socks is because if you put on these socks, these are awesome velocity socks, by the way. Who brought their Bible? All right, brought their Bible. Okay. (laughs) Going to be careful in here. (laughs) All right, in the back. No, I'm just kidding. The reason you got to know how to put on your socks is if you got wrinkles in them, and you put on your shoe, that's going to lead to a blister. And if you get a blister, you're going to favor the other foot. If you begin to favor the other foot, you're going to start doing your practices wrong. And if you're going to start doing practices wrong, everything I teach you is going to be messed up. Socks, shoelaces. You got to know how to tighten your shoes. You got to tighten them at the bottom, work your way up. The reason you got to do this is because if you don't have your laces tight, you're going to get a sprained ankle. If you get a sprained ankle, then you're going to favor the other foot. If you favor the other foot, you're going to start doing things wrong. You start doing things wrong, everything I teach you is going to be messed up. Just like to check if people are paying attention. What I'm going to talk to you about today is the socks and shoelaces of Christianity. If you don't get this right, it'll mess up everything else. And it sounds so elementary, but John Wooden's point was, 
success comes from grasping the basics. If you don't understand that which is basic, you'll never be able to do the things that are asked of you in an efficient or effective manner. And I feel that way today. Of all the things we're going to talk about in Scripture, all the series we're going to do, everything you want God to teach you in your life, show you, do for you. If you don't get this right, it's not going to matter. This is the socks and the shoelaces. Really what I'm talking about is how you handle it. So I want to read to you from Scripture today, and then after I read from my Bible in this one, we're going to go through things quickly. So this is 2 Timothy chapter 2. I've asked them to keep things on the screen a little bit longer so you can take a picture or write it down. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. This is what it says. It says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Today I want to deal with four key understandings to help you properly handle the word of God. Because without these four things, all those 8,000 promises in Scripture doesn't matter. You can't trust in any of those 8,000 promises that this book contains without what I'm going to show you today. But when you embrace what I'm going to teach you, not only can you believe the promises, you can trust the principles. In other words, not just what has God promised you, but what does this say about morals? What does this say about instructions, commands for living, conditional promises? Now, a couple of ground rules as I get into this. First thing I want you to know, I'm speaking primarily to Christians today. And I know we may have some people in the room that you're not a follower of Jesus yet. I'm glad that you're here. And if you're not, I'm going to give you the opportunity to know Jesus personally and receive salvation today by trusting in him. But I'm not speaking to skeptics. And the reason I want to set that up is because I was, if I was speaking to a skeptic, I would approach this differently. I, 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 I'm going to be speaking from Scripture. If I was speaking to a skeptic who doesn't believe the Bible, I'm not going to be quoting the Bible to them. I'd be talking about how you can trust the Bible. And I touched on some of this last week because of its historical accuracy, scientific accuracy, prophetic accuracy, how despite how it was written over years of time, different authors, it's thematically unified, how it's withstood attacks, how Jesus affirmed it, how it has power to change lives. I would talk about some of those. But because you're a Christian, it's implied you have a base level belief in Jesus and the Bible. This is how Paul talked about it. He said, I'm not ashamed of the good news because it is the power God uses to save everyone who believes. In other words, the gospel, the Bible, is the power God uses. Not just referencing this for insight, I'm referencing it because when it's read, it has power to transform your life. That's why we're gonna look at scripture today. So, as a Christian, it's implied you have a base level belief in the Bible, a base level belief in Jesus. But what's crazy to me, this is happening more and more, is I meet people who will say, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, I'm not sure about the Bible. 
That is the most illogical thing that you can say. Where do you think we learn about Jesus? In the Bible. So what happens is, people say, well, I don't really believe that. I believe this. And they kind of have their version of Jesus that makes them feel good. But understand, what I believe about Jesus is not a Snuggie to make me feel good. What I believe about Jesus causes me to place my life under his authority. And if what you believe about Jesus doesn't come from the Bible, it doesn't have the power to change your life. Now, you might not know this. There are, there, it's called extra biblical accounts of Jesus, meaning historical writings, not much about Jesus. That would tell you, without the Bible, would tell you that Jesus lived, he died, uh, there was a resurrection, he had followers, there were miracles attributed to him. But what we know about Jesus, his teachings, his morals, his examples, is found here. It's not found anyplace else. So, as a Christian, what is it we believe about the Bible? I'm going to go through this kind of quickly. It's going to feel a little bit like school. That's why I'm wearing my blazer today. I'm trying to feel professional. I'm going to give you some technical terms, theological, biblical terms, but I'm going to explain them so you can understand what these mean. Like I said, it might feel a little like school, but it's going to be helpful. So let me give you the first one. I won't take a long time with this one because we touched on it last week. What do we as Christians believe about the Bible? Here's the first one, that the Bible is inspired, that the Bible is inspired. What does that mean? That God divinely influenced the human writers. Peter said this in his letter. He said, first thing you have to understand is this. Scripture never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In other words, what he's saying is that the human writers, they did not stop being human when they wrote. God didn't dictate Scripture. The Holy Spirit moved them to write. What that means is that they used their human perspective. They related to their human experience. They had a personality that comes through in the way they wrote. It, it, it was, they were still human, but it wasn't their personal idea. It wasn't their personal motivation. The other side of that is the human writers knew that they were speaking God's word. It's so important that you understand, it wasn't like they wrote something and then years later, oh, that's God's word. They knew as I am writing this with my personality, with my experience, with my perspective, God is speaking through me. In the Old Testament, you see prophets, they would say things like this, the word of the Lord came to me. You see a prophet say, this is what the Lord says. Moses, distributed the first five books of the Bible, he would talk to God, he would say, this is God's command. This is what the Lord says. In the New Testament, when they refer back to the Old Testament writings, they're, they're talking about something that's written down, they refer to it as God's word. Scripture that was written, they said, this is what God says. Scripture, God says. In addition, the New Testament writers, as they wrote, Paul would say, you received what I said as God's word because it is God's word. 
In another place, he said, if anybody doesn't receive what I say as God's word, ignore them. That's pretty strong. Peter, all, all the New Testament writers, they knew they were being used by God to communicate the word of God. That's what it means, inspired, divinely influenced the human writers. Still human, influenced by God. The Bible is infallible. This next one, not going to spend a lot of time here, but real quickly. Infallible means unable to fail. It's permanent, binding, unchanging, and cannot be broken. This is how Peter put it. He said, love each other with a warm love that comes from the heart. After all, you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth. As a result, you have a sincere love for each other. Notice this. You have been born again, not from a seed that can be destroyed, but through God's everlasting word that can't be destroyed. That's why scripture says, and he's quoting the Old Testament, all people are like grass and all their beauty is like a flower of the field. The grass dries up, the flower drops off, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. This next part is really interesting. He says, this word is the good news. Good news is gospel that was told you. That's pretty important. Because what he's saying is he's connecting the word of God to the gospel. What's the gospel? The gospel is what Jesus did. How he was the son of God. He came into the world to take your sin upon him. He was crucified, dead, buried, and rose again. And that through that, you can have right standing with God by belief in him. That's the gospel. Well, what Peter says is this word is the gospel that was told you. Why does that matter? Because you can't separate the Bible from the gospel. I've actually heard famous preachers say one time, Christianity doesn't need the Bible to exist any more than you need your birth certificate to exist. Now, I know what he was trying to say, but that's not true. That's wrong. Scripture says you can't separate the two. You can't understand your need for the gospel message without the Bible. You can't understand what Jesus did and our need for him without the Old Testament. Okay, so here's a third, and this is where we want to spend the most time. The Bible is inerrant. Inerrant. What does that mean? It's free from error. It's trustworthy and reliable. Real quickly, First John, or John 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Verse 14 says, The Word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. Talking about Jesus. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. What's that saying? You cannot separate God from his word. God and his word are one, cannot be separated. Why does that matter? Because when we say the Bible is inerrant, one of the things we're talking about is that God is without error. God is true. Because God is without error, it would be illogical, irrational, incompatible to believe that he would give you his word with error. This is what it means when we say the Bible is inerrant. Now, let me talk about this a minute because confessing inerrancy is not necessary for salvation. It might seem kind of crazy, but it's, it's not. But I'll take it one step further. There's a lot of things 
that you don't have to confess to be saved. The gospel is very simple. I saw somebody making fun of it on Instagram the other day, but it's true. The gospel is very simple. It's belief in Jesus. It's almost amazing that it's as simple as say a prayer, believe it in your heart, and confess. That's how simple the gospel is. You don't have to confess inerrancy for salvation, but you do have to continue in the word of God to be a disciple. And there's a lot of things that you have to adhere to to be a disciple of Jesus that you don't have to confess for salvation. Jesus said it this way in John 8. He said, he told the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, you're really my disciples. And you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. So confessing inerrancy isn't something you need to be saved, but I would argue you can't really grow and be a disciple without adhering to the inerrancy of scripture. All right, so let me explain what, because this is a big one. What does inerrancy mean? What, what does it not mean? When we're talking about inerrancy, first thing you need to know, inerrancy does not mean, it's going to shock you, everything in the Bible is truth. See if anybody's looking at me dirty for a minute. Okay, what do I mean by this? The Bible records things that Satan said. Jesus said Satan is the father of lies. So it accurately records what was said, but if it was a lie, it's a lie. It's not truth. Does that make sense? It records what Pharaoh said. Pharaoh said, okay, I'm going to let your people go. That wasn't true. It was a lie. So it's accurately recorded. You can't just like pull that out and say this is truth. Pharisees, it quotes the Pharisees. What the Pharisees said wasn't necessarily truth, but it was accurately recorded. Okay. Uh, another example. Jesus spoke in parables. The parables contain truth. It's not necessary that the parables were a true story. Prodigal son? I mean, it could be a true story. I don't know. But it could just be a story. It's not necessary that the parable is true. This one is maybe a little challenging, but it's worth knowing. Not everything the Bible says about God is truth. And before you think I'm crazy, the book of Job, Job is a righteous man. There's none like him. He has three friends. His friends, when Job is going through all this stuff, they make some claims about God. What they say is not necessarily true. Does that make sense? Accurately recorded, not truth. Okay, that was maybe, hopefully, the hardest one. Hopefully, that doesn't change too much. Here's another one. Inerrancy does not mean the Bible must be written in technically correct language and must exclude metaphors and figures of speech. When Jesus said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's a metaphor. I mean, I hope it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. Now think about this. Jesus is the word of God in the flesh. Cannot lie. But he said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut off. It's a figure of speech. Now, if this is true of Jesus, the word of God, I want you to understand that the Bible, it allows for people to experience what's going on in their life and share it just like you and I would share it. 
This one trips people up a lot. Now, why is this so important to know? Because if you don't know this, you're going to read stuff in Scripture, and you're going to get confused. I'm going to give you maybe a, a challenging one. Joshua 10. Joshua 10. I've preached on this passage. It's a great passage. Joshua is fighting five Amorite kings, and he, as he's fighting them, he says something. He prays this prayer. He says, sun stands still in Gibeon. Moon stays stopped over Ijuan or something like that. Elijah. I don't know. Look it up. John, or Joshua 10. As he says this, the writer goes on to say, so the sun stood still, the moon stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there has been no day like that before or after it that the Lord heeded the voice of man for the Lord fought for Israel. Now make no mistake about this. God worked a miracle. How God worked a miracle, I don't know. Before you think I am dismissing what happened, I want you to understand, I believe that God, who is the author of the laws and principles of the universe, is well within his right and ability if he chooses to suspend the laws of the universe in this moment. I believe that. However, if you read something like this, and you're like, I, I just can't, what we understand about the universe, I just, gravitational, I just, I don't see how that's possible. Last I checked, even though we know that the earth revolves around the sun, scientific fact, we still talk about the sunrise and the sunset. If that doesn't cause us problems, then we shouldn't get bent out of shape when we see somebody use language to describe what they experienced. God worked a miracle in Joshua. I don't know if it was his presence that shone so brightly like the sun that he thought it was the sun or whether he stopped the laws of the universe to make sense. It doesn't matter that much to me. But what we can say is, is that when we read something, we shouldn't just be so quick to dismiss it because we neglect the fact that the Bible doesn't have to use technical, scientific language or can't use a figure of speech or can't use a metaphor. And a lot of people get tripped up with Scripture simply because they don't understand the Bible uses metaphors and figures of speech. Here's the next one. The Bible, when we talk about inerrancy, inerrancy doesn't mean that the Bible must have no perceived contradictions. I have the word perceived in quotes because sometimes you read the Bible and it seems like there's contradictions. Now, if that bothers you that I'm a pastor up here saying that, all that tells me is you have never read through the Bible. Because sometimes you read it and it's like, what? That doesn't make sense. In fact, skeptics would say there's over 400 contradictions. That's what a skeptic would say. Here's what I would ask you. I can't go through all 400, but here's a rule. Here's what I would ask you when you encounter something that seems like it doesn't make sense. I would just ask that you would approach the Bible with the same level of intellectual honesty that we approach any other thing in life. It's the same way we approach the sciences, which is we observe it and there must be a solution. There, I, I read this and it doesn't make sense, 
but there must be a way to resolve this. There must be something that I don't understand. I mean, we have whole fields of science called quantum mechanics and theoretical physics that is about try, trying to interpret things we observe that we can't understand. I'm just saying, can we do that with scripture? That we would say, all right, I see this, I don't understand it, but there must be a way. Now, I told you skeptics would say there's over 400 contradictions. Norman Geisler, a theologian and scholar, passed away. He said there's over 800 contradictions. Mind you, he is a theologian and a scholar. He wrote over 100 books. Most notable one was Defending Inerrancy. And he came to the conclusion after examining all 800 plus that there were zero actual contradictions. And if you want to check this out for yourself, like I said, he's passed. He's written a lot of books. You don't have to read the books. There's a website in his honor called DefendingInerrancy.com, which has, it's all annotated, the different things. When you read something, you just go look, and, and it's got a summary of it. Number four, inerrancy is not, does not mean that all extra copies of the manuscripts and translations are without error. I mentioned this to you last week. The copies that we have of Scripture, of which there are over 27,000 ancient documents that we have, in comparison, mind you, with seven ancient copies of Plato's Republic that we have and read and is taught in college, of those 27,000 plus, there's errors. And most people say somewhere around 0.5%. Punctuation, spelling, names of things. Okay. I don't know a theologian that would say that the manuscripts don't have errors. There's errors. But none of it is doctrinal. None of it is anything that would change what we believe about Scripture. When we say it's an error, what we're talking about is the original autographs that the human writers wrote. That's what we mean is without error. Here's the last one. That all, when we say inerrancy, inerrancy is not that all interpretations of the text are without error. Sometimes people have problems with this because they look at different things that have been interpreted over the years, and what they say is, well, this person thinks this way about the scripture, that person thinks that way about scripture, and since there's two different opinions, two different interpretations, we can't really know what's true. That is a philosophical fallacy. Just because you've seen or experienced a faulty interpretation doesn't mean that there is not an accurate interpretation. Just because you don't know the answer doesn't mean there is not an answer. When it comes to inerrancy, I would sum it all up like this. Most people's conflict with the Bible isn't doctrinal, it's cultural. It's not doctrinal, it's cultural. Most people disagree with the Bible, not on the basis of doctrine, that the Bible disagrees with itself, but on the basis of culture. And that's why this is the last of the four. The last thing you need to know is this, that the Bible is authoritative. The Bible is authoritative. What does that mean? It is to govern, correct, and instruct the way we live. Timothy, Paul wrote this to Timothy. He said, the whole Bible 
was given to us by inspiration from God and is useful to teach us what is true, make us realize what is wrong in our lives, and straighten us out, help us do what is right. God's word is not just something to believe in. It is something to live by. And one of the greatest challenges facing Christians today is to compromise God's word when it contradicts our current culture. And you will if you don't believe that the Bible is authoritative. I want to close by making a statement that's going to be very shocking. What I would tell you is to dismiss parts of Scripture because they're not culturally relevant is heresy. Heresy means a false teaching. The only parts of the Bible that are no longer observed are the parts of the Bible, the parts where the Bible teaches us to no longer observe them. Let me explain what I mean. Maybe you've been coming to church here at Velocity for a year now. That's awesome. Glad you've been coming for a while. You're like, man, I've been coming for a year. And I'm reading the Old Testament. We're like, they're making all these sacrifices, animal sacrifices. I've never seen us sacrifice a bull on Sunday. I guess we don't do that anymore because, you know, it's not part of culture. The reason we don't make an animal sacrifice isn't because it would be culturally inappropriate. The reason we don't is because God showed us through Scripture that animal sacrifices are no longer necessary to have right standing with God. But, I mean, the, I'll, I'll put it this way. Scripture says Jesus died once and for all. The reason we don't make animal sacrifices is because God gave his son Jesus, who was the sacrifice once and for all. But the sacrifice of Jesus doesn't make any sense unless you understand the Old Testament where this was the way of having right standing with God. What I'm trying to say is when we say the Bible's authoritative, as a Christian, what we must believe is that my experiences do not dictate the truth of the Bible. My experiences can change, but the Word of God does not change. When my experience doesn't align with what I see in Scripture, I'm going to live with loyalty to the Bible. Because this is the socks and shoelaces of Christianity. It's inspired, it's infallible, it's inerrant, and it's authoritative. You gotta know the basics. Otherwise, you'll be trying to dismantle things that you don't even understand.